This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This episode, we are joined by C. Derek Varn to discuss another Not One Step Back patron request, this time covering Farewell to the Working Class by Andre Gores. Non-class is in session. Another not one step back listener request. This one, you know, was probably something I should have read long time ago, and I've heard a million references to, mostly dismissively in the same breath as the word Eurocommunism. It's uh, Andre Gore's Goodbye to the Working Class. In this uh, not one step back, gun to our back, you know, realm of necessity request, we've uh, brought in some additional hired guns. Welcome, Derek. Hi, I uh, thought this was an enemy camp episode, and after reading it, I'm still not sure. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the friend-enemy distinction uh, is not always easy to navigate. <laughs> this, is, yeah. this is a frenemy camp. So. In the frenemy yeah, camp. Yeah. In the frenemy camp, yeah. You know, as is so often in the Clone Wars. Um, what have we got here? This guy was a student of uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, had this like existentialist kind of Marxist point of view, and eventually, you know, follows Sartre's critique of Hegelianism, but also his critique of Althusserianism um, to some kind of startling conclusions. Uh, Listeners to this podcast will be familiar with most of them, actually, because, you know... Now that I read this, of course, I see where EndNotes gets a lot of its basic presuppositions from, down to yeah. the formulation. So, but say, how much of communization theory is like the anarchist the anarchification of basically Euro common late social dem- democratic theory? Because um, yeah, I I felt like I was like, huh, I've read this before. We just did the history of separation on right. another show, and it right. feels very familiar. Yeah, I mean, well, it's so yeah, communization. You basically take kind of the zeitgeist of that period, which you know was heavily like anarchism, like as a ideology, like on the far left. That was kind of in the United States, at least. That was kind of a it's kind of its heyday. I mean, like social democracy has pushed back on that a little bit in recent years, and to a certain extent, Stalinism as well. Uh, but I, I could see how they're basically looking at the same fundamental question of, you know, what do you do with automation, like the rising organic composition of capital and like these populations that are surplus to productive capital? You know, what do you do with the growing, the growth of the informal economy? Um, and what do you do with the situation where, you know, so the sort of classical proletariat uh, wasn't able to, you know, in the decisive moment, like seize power and, you know, build a communism or whatever. Um, so it's, 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 it's dealing with the same 
general questions. I think Mike Davis is interested in this stuff as well. But I haven't read Endnotes in long enough to point out like the similarities or differences here. But it the question of what do you do with like this? You could say like neo proletariat or post proletariat or whatever um, is to, is is a significant question and one that I think that yeah a lot of people have been grappling with in the last fifty years. Yeah, I, I would say that if you were to read History of Separation and then read chapters one through four of this, you would notice a huge overlap. Um, yeah. The, the the shift is around chapter five where it goes in a completely different direction. But like it's it's interesting. It's interesting also how much of this does seem to come out of that 50s milieu where the industrial proletariat still exists, but everyone assumes that it's been totally depoliticized because of the post-war social compact, because that's also a background for this. Um, and why we talked about uh, Gore's relation to you know existentialism, which he maintained throughout his life, um, he also was like a buddy with Herbert Marcuse. And so there's Frankfurt School kind of thought in here as well. And he was a buddy with a bunch of like radical neo-Keynesians. So you get, you know, not just Euro-communism, but like the beginnings of what would become MMT and other things are kind of in the background of this <sighs> as well. Yeah, well, you can't win them all. Like, you know, that was, that was a pretty good combo before. You start throwing the neo-Keynesianism in, yeah, yeah. That no, that is actually where the the deal sours for me because the one thing I was most shocked by reading this book is how little I hated it and how much I agreed with in the book. Like, yeah, when we were reading it, I read it first, Esri. Like, and did you? Where's the point that it lost you? Honestly, it's really not until the last chapter or the 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 one on the state. That it truly loses me. I, I have asterisks and quibbles before that. Like, including and including the part where, you know, there's always going to be some work that nobody fucking really wants to do that we have to punch in and punch out and trying to, you know, you know, trying to uh, Huckleberry Finn your way around that or what is it? Uh, trying to Tom Sawyer your way around that and, you know, make people feel like it's good is just going to lead to totalitarianism. Like, I, I kind of buy that you know in a in a big way uh, but then the realm of necessity becomes the state right and you have someone not defending some possible future arrangement but defending the non-totalitarian state and and civil society although he seems to have some inklings that we're entering into the total state anyway like but that's not even in the main that's in an appendix an appendix suggests that but the main body of the book doesn't seem to have that awareness. Yeah, I, my uh, feelings were similar as, it st as I was 100% with it for the first four chapters. Around chapter five, you start having like little notes. And by the time mm -hmm. you get to, to chapter like chapter eight and chapter nine, mm -hmm. I wanted to throw the book. And yeah. it, was, it was a very weird experience because I have rarely gone from so on board with something to so not on board with something yeah. fairly quickly. <laughs> So should we start with like his preface? Because I kind of, I kind of wrote, I kind of roughly summarized. He has like what he describes as nine theses for a future left, and this kind of outlines roughly, roughly a lot of the arguments of the book. Uh, I'm, I'm keep in mind I'm paraphrasing these. So if I if I miss something nuance here or get something wrong, please let me know. Uh, so one thesis one is basically that the central theme of the book will be uh, the liberation of time and the abolition of work. Uh, 
Two, uh, the difference between wage labor and self-determined activity is the same as the difference between use value and exchange value. And the abolition of work will only be emancipatory if it also allows the development of autonomous activity. Um, Three, the manner in which the abolition of work is to be managed and socially implemented constitutes the central political issue of the coming decades. Four, that the right to an income is superior to the right to a job. Five, the evolution of work is neither acceptable nor desirable for people who identify with their work, define themselves through it, or hope to realize themselves in their work. Uh, six, the definition of the non-class of non-workers as a potential social subject of the abolition of work is not the result of an ethical or ideological choice. The choice, or yeah, the choice is either a socially controlled emancipatory abolition of work or its oppressive anti-social abolition. Uh, seven, in a complex society, the nature, modalities, and objective objectives of work are to a large extent determined by necessities over which individuals or groups have relatively little control eight the non-class is not a social subject it has no transcendent unit or mission and hence no all no overall conception of history and society and nine the right to control one's own life can only be affirmed if it corresponds to a power that individuals derive from their own existence rather than their integration into into society in other words from their own autonomy um I think, I, I don't know, I feel like for me, like this theme of autonomy is maybe like the trickiest, the trickiest part of it. He's, the way he writes this, he's trying to almost write in the spirit of young Marx while still being highly critical of Marx's kind of uh, idealistic and uh, characterization of like the trajectory of pro, the, the development of the proletariat uh, what he, as what he sees deriving from like philosophical categories and maybe not from like... Uh, some deep uh, apprehension of their subjective experience. Um, and, you know, so part of the problem is like he sort of, he reproduces some of the same problems of the things he's critiquing, but he also paints himself into a corner because, I don't know, it's very hard to read this and see a way out of this impasse he's characterizing. Uh, particularly around the question of autonomy because, you know, his whole thing is that, the, not his whole thing, but a major part of this is that the left has especially the Marxist left has really gainsayed the idea of like individual autonomy uh, and saw it as like a petty bourgeois or some kind of nostalgic holdover from peasant societies um, and that they sort of need to embrace as a value and enlarge the spheres of, of autonomy. But how you do that in a collective way out of capitalism into something else to me is not clear at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, he, he, the, the, what I felt like is the bait and switch there is basically the administrative state as it currently exists could be teleologically oriented towards the minimization of unpleasant work um, since its abolition is impossible. But we want to you know, free up as much time as possible. So, ipso facto, autonomy. And... That's that's where it completely loses me too, because it's basically saying that the seeds of the liberation of of time and is in the non class and non work, but we have to use the state to acknowledge but the little bit of work we still have to do um and figure out how to do that without wages. But we can do that with the current state somehow. Like that's that's the argument ultimately. He's always hazy about this until he just kind of full throatedly goes for this weird posture 
of an autonomous, non-totalitarian statism. He argues for central planning and a realm of kind of, you know, grim necessity, but a minimal one, as short as possible, small as possible, with some caveats and quibbles about just how autonomous, even, you know, controlled, exploited work can be under capitalism. One would hope, you know, socialism could do it, do this, do autonomy even on the job better than capitalism can. Uh, Because, you know, when you look at certain types of workers, you know, the desire for autonomy isn't necessarily their problem. It's like uh, just organizing time or something, which is still, still in the soul, I don't know, still in the wheelhouse of this book. But, uh, just something that, you know, he didn't predict, which is fine. You know, he's not a rabbi. Uh, happy Hanukkah, by the way. Oh, yeah, yeah. Happy Hanukkah. Is yeah. That, is it still going on? Are we still yeah. within the eight days? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we get, we get, the, big, get the big light show. Yeah, so what I find wild about this, uh, in a way, I mean, we could talk about his specific criticisms of Marx and stuff, but is the, like, dual society argument and then how much this seems contemporary to us, but also, which is wild considering like what he's talking about with full automation and the maximum capacity of automation being reached in like 1982 is really funny. You have no idea how far we can take this. I guess the thing that really stood out to me is that um, probably the biggest thing I've read recently that kind of rhymes with this is Aaron Benenev's book on automation. Um, Beninev also picks up that if you try to separate the spheres, I'm sorry, if you try to, you know, collapse work into play and just have a big realm of joyous work that you, you will create a totalitarian split. However, Beninev does not end up supporting um, UBI, does not end up supporting universal basic income and, you know, supports essentially like a distributed minimized work program. Um, which is different. And also, uh, Beninev is uh, bullish on automation and, you know, there's a sort of critical history of how, you know, how over time, like, people are always like, oh, this is it. They're cu- the robots are coming. They're coming for all our jobs now. And for some reason, that horizon always gets kicked into the future. And, you know. The Beninev comparison is interesting because I know Beninev probably, like, probably wouldn't like for me to say this, but in some ways, Beninev's more of a traditional Marxist. Because Beninev's predictions are actually in line with a lot of Marxist predictions on automation. The whole, the computers will take all of our jobs will never actually happen because uh, there has to be some labor in the system to maintain it at at a variable capital because of robots eventually like slaves and other things that are compelled become fixed capital and they're highly, and eventually through competition will become inefficient. Whereas like, that's not something that Gorse seems to even think is on the horizon. The The other thing is, how much of this feels like it's out of... Like, some of this feels very, very related to us because of the, you know, the end of the industrial working class um, and the industrial, specifically the industrial proletariat. But parts of it where it's talking about the state sector feel like, dude, did you not see what was going on at the end of the 70s? No, he he is very good at characterizing like the subjective experience of you know you could call like precarious work or people on the margins of you know produ- the productive capital, 
he does a, he does, does a pretty good job of that. But I also kind of wonder if he's maybe overestimating like how historically I feel like a lot of people do this. How historically novel like gig work and hustling is. Because I remember reading about people like having like side hustles like in London at like the height of you know like rising industrial capital. Like there's always been people uh, outside the circuit of capitalist economy just kind of you know there's always been like lump and proletariat and people at the edges uh trying to survive amidst that you know i mean it that can the the mass of that can grow as automation makes things more efficient and you get those rising organic composition of capital but it's it's not exactly a new condition no i would i would actually think what's interesting and maybe endnotes is actually better about this is uh pointing out that specifically, I mean, and I'm going to be specific about the industrial proletariat because I don't want to get into the debates about what is and is not proletariat based on productive versus non-productive, but socially necessary and non-socially necessary categories. The industrial proletariat was never more than 40% of the population in any place on earth, like, uh, which really messed with the early Kalskiist, like democratic-ish assumption that the industrial uh, proletariat would just be able to vote itself into the majority. Um, as but, long as we're doing genealogy on arguments, that's argued uh, earliest probably by Edward Bernstein, who, right. among besides founding revisionism, was also a so a good sociologist. Like, kind of did understand what was happening at the time in a way that, in a way that was like tragically perceptive in a way that was only mirrored on the, you know, hard left of the communist spectrum. Well, what's interesting to me is like, let's, let's make that more explicit. This feels like an ultra left argument for Bernsteinism. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think. I was gonna say, how tight is this to Euro communism? Like really? I mean, I can definitely see how it's emerging out of the same milieu, but I don't know. Everything I've read about Euro communism just suggests to me that it was kind of like, it was kind of just like the, communist parties in western europe like putting a new paint job on social democracy you know what i mean like it seemed like it was essentially a more of a publicity publicity strategy than anything else i mean if if i had to guess gores was not like i I don't know gores was maybe closer to euro communism than you know baudrillard was to like french conservatism even though you know uh baudrillard's book on the left the, the divine left which we read um became like kind of like a you know uh, a cultured book to read in French conservative circles for a while, even though like, you know, Baudrillard wasn't associated with their party or something. I'm not sure if it's, I don't know how much more like direct of a, of a connection it is between Eurocommunism and Gores, but I could definitely see in that kind of way, this would become a popular book to start reading to like start pushing for, well, here's what's important about it. You have these, the Western communist parties who have had this split loyalty between the USSR and between um, their national, you know, uh, you know, their, their, their nation state. Right. And, you know, for this, during the popular front, the Stalinists encouraged them to go nationalist. And then, you know, eventually, you know, especially the, uh, the French communist party and the Italian communist party eventually really go harder into that than Moscow would ever want because it means they're answering to their own government <laughs> instead of <laughs> to Moscow. And um, this sort of formalizes the break because, you know, Eurocommunism is thought of for the most part as a, 
as the de-Leninization of these parties. Um, so like there's a, there's a brief period, you know, after like Khrushchev and, you know, before Euro communism, that was a little more, I don't know, experimental, <laughs> but yeah, the, the, the major innovation of Euro communism is to be like, yeah, class is different now. Let's attack the social Democrats from the right because, cl- you know, class is uh, not what it used to be. Well, and yeah, I, I mean, I, I can see where that links up, especially with because like Euro communism, the composition of the communist parties is becoming more like pr- based in the professions uh, and not just to end in like there was more of a broad class alliance and simply trying to uh, root itself in like an industrial proletariat or whatever. But like. I could see that in the sense of in its emphasis on autonomy, because I think part of the problem with this is that like within like the system of capitalism, the way that people seek autonomy is bourgeois, right? Because you can't you can't seek like personal autonomy by just at least not anymore by getting some land uh, and, you know, just living out, getting your little acreage and just living off that and being out of the system and out of the game. I mean. That's a lot of the lubricant that made capitalism and wage labor acceptable to people at first in the United States. But, you know, it doesn't exist anymore. So the only way out is to basically, you know, make a bunch of money in crypto or, you know, get a bunch of properties and do rent seeking behaviors or, you know, it, it the way to get, gain the personal autonomy that he talks about is entirely is mediated through the market. And so, you know, if, yeah. if you want to emphasize that you kind of you're going to be pulling in like you know, uh, petty bourgeois and higher like class elements, you know, and th- there's no way for the state to enlarge that because if the emphasis is only on personal autonomy, then it's very hard to build any kind of collective and collective subjectivity that's capable of challenging the system to deliver that autonomy for everybody. Right. I was thinking about, again, comparing this to EndNotes. EndNotes' current obsession with non-movements, um, and the non-class here as being a similar category. But I also think, to bring it back to what we're talking about, pairing this with Baudrillard actually is kind of an insightful because they're the two different reactions to the immediate frustration to Mitterrand um, in 1981. Yeah, well, yeah. So, Baudrillard fills in the blanks where this is very na- – it's seemingly very naive about how the state and politics are going to end up, although I, I don't know if that's – Right. Yeah. I, like well, I mean, what's interesting though is this book was rejected by the French, even the Euro communist French left. Like, okay. It, yeah. It was See, more I don't popular know. out front, outside of France. I, I, I was doing research on it today. It was more popular outside of France than in it. But what's also interesting is Gortz argues that he's actually kind of a, you know, a structural Marxist humanist in this. And he was also trying to fight off um, the influence of Antonio uh, Negri mm. taking in all all the post structuralism right, into autonomia. Right. So yeah. like, so there's kind of a dual front war being waged here about what Euro communism is going to be. Is it going to be this like uh, Negri like autonomia, but? But populist, the multitudes, which actually it does sort of initially become by the end of the 90s, um, where all these post-Marxist and post-structuralist ideas get somehow rehabilitated into Marxism. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, via critical theory, via like... Right, know. via critical theory. I mean, 
via the ultra globalization movement, I mean, like, like let's not forget that somehow multitude um, and empire were both like they were influential. In the, yeah, they were on the New York Times bestseller list, by, you know, in the late '90s. It was wild. Like I read them yeah. in high school. So yeah, these are popular right books. After high school. Yeah. So well, they're popular. They're not written to be popular at all. Um, but this book was never popular, and it seems like it was kind of. If you know, if we're gonna put everything in the left, right, center spectrum, um, you know, this is kind of the center Euro communist response, as opposed to the left Euro communist response of post structuralism. Although calling that left is kind of funny, and it's complicated, you know. Right, <laughs> the, the the right Euro communist response of like. Uh, Class market is neo uh, classes uh, classes market neo Keynesianism, right? Like, um, so that that's interesting. Um, I don't know what it really says. I mean, you know what I think it says is that the reason that communizers and Euro communists of this kind, you know, sound alike is because they're describing a shared reality that they both feel differently about and want to do different things with, which always makes, you know, cause there are some debates where like, it's such a collapsed discussion because the central antagonism is stupid. Uh, you know, like the central framing is very stupid. And like the entire framing of us politics right now, <laughs> for instance. Yeah. Those like collapsed imploded death spiral conversations are what they are because both sides are essentially wrong about the antagonism. But every so often you come upon a nice, a nice stable antagonism that actually gets at like the heart of something. And it, you have people with completely different, like, you know, ethical intuitions and commitments going in different directions, but saying a bunch of similar things about how the world is because that's what the world is. And, <laughs> you know, like this is this is the kind of thing that I that I already knew from observing poverty, from you know, kind of going down on the class ladder. Like I knew that people hated work, and you know, they just wanted to be themselves. And like, but the whole reason people get into politics can sometimes be, and can often be, especially on the internet, now, an expression of alienation, right? So you're already trying to get away from your life. And to go into politics to be told, hey, you should have a self when everything in the fucking world tells you you should have a self, you know, like there's a there's a reason people reject the shared reality described by communization and neurocommunism. It's certainly something I tried to find a way around. And I'm still not really sure, you know, how how you can respond differently other than being like a vague postmodern anarchist with like value theory or, you know, uh, a right social Democrat with red flags. Right. Well, I mean, the one, the other thing I'll say about this, even though this isn't, this is historically linked to Euro communism, that in the English speaking world, it's actually linked also to like Jacqueline and, and Ivan Illich, which is that whole, um, work skeptical, uh, 
French Christian, uh, French and Austrian Christian anarchism. Um, uh, yeah, that's, that, that's that's the weirdest association. Ivan Illich, is that the guy who's like, uh, we need to not have school uh, yes. because school makes society bu- like alienated and bureaucratic or whatever. Right. Um, it, it basically takes like the the, the uh, dialectic of enlightenment um, to its almost most absurd conclusion. Um, uh, you there's know, always more. There's always more absurd. I was say, I was like, until <laughs> primitivism happens, which makes it the even more absurd yeah, conclusion. Until psychic primitivism happened, which wants to abolish <laughs> language. Yeah, but I mean, I, honestly, his book on de-schooling society actually isn't even terrible in the sense that, like, some of what he is criticizing in, like, uh, John Dewey is real. Like, you know, John Dewey's super progressive, blah, 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 but he's really just preparing kids for entering capital while telling them he's doing something else. Um, he's not wrong about that. But the w- it's it's interesting with Gortz because Gortz is the only one of the three that I just listed who's not a... F- who's not, like... I'm a leftist, but also I'm a traditionalist Catholic. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. which, uh, which is milieu. interesting. There's a sketchy milieu here. Like, um, <laughs> he, he uses uh, some of Rudolf Barra's terminology quite liberally. Um, you know, some of the footnotes from Alternative in Eastern Europe. He really likes the word heterotomy. Heteronomy. You yeah, know, it's the opposite of up. autonomy. Yeah, the, uh, the, by the rule of another, as it's the op- yeah the uh, not autonomous. <laughs> yeah, I guess he also pulls from Illich uh, the idea of like tools for conviviality and the idea of like essentially designing tools for uh, what he calls like the, yeah the sphere of autonomy that would allow people to I don't know like de- like develop things in ways that were. Um, that were sort of a, would allow like more human flourishing, and these ideas in turn, I guess, also influence software development. The idea that the people developing software is that we could create these things, these things that would make things like easier for people. But elsewhere in this book, he's, he's also highly critical of uh, the way that, and this is one of the more prescient observations, is how the introduction of uh, computerization could actually eat into people's free time, such that you know, their whole life essentially becomes work and becomes, uh, they basically lose their autonomy because everything is like regulated by assistance of, uh, computerized machinery or and I guess now apps or whatever that tell you like yeah. when to sleep and when to meditate and all that shit. Yeah. And like, I'll tell you, like when you need to organize your own free time, like a lot of people who are working from home have to, um, you want you want that kind of thing. You know, you eventually are like, man, I really need some structure. Like I could really use to structure my free time. And then your free time becomes hustles. And here's maybe where autonomy doesn't really get at what's the weird aspects of capitalism, where in the parlance of the book, your hobbies become your work and the the work, you know, in a weird capitalist way of abolishing the private and public, you know, distinction or whatever, the heteronomy, autonomy distinction. Um, and so... To justify one of the, your hobbies, all of them, they all become side gigs. Yeah, they like, all become side gigs. So work is everything. Like everything you do is work. So there is like a... 
if you're defining totalitarian the way he does, you know, there's like a, a, a creep of totalitarianism in the way like our, in the way computerization has like effects affected our, our free time. Like, and it's, you know what? I don't care about the sleep tracker app or the, or the thing that, you know, helps me figure out that I need to like exercise or else I'm going to like lose blood flow to my knees or something. Like I'm fine with that shit. Like, you know, track me. That's fine. Like, you know, I'm alienated enough. I can deal with it. Like, but the, the stuff where you, you don't have free time anymore. Everything you love is work. There's no difference. It's that's suffocates me just to say it. Like I've been spending a lot of time on the, uh, anti-work, uh, Reddit and discord recently, just because I'm, you know, happy to see it, happy to see people talking about work and, you know, sharing ideas about like what a world without work would be like, whatever that means, you know, because they're significant, significant. And just like any anti something, the anti usually means alter. It it usually ends up meaning, you know, anti-capitalism usually just wants to do a different kind of capitalism. Anti-imperialism usually is cheerleading a different kind of imperialism. Alter globalization actually admitted it was alter. Well, like. well yeah, that's actually that's totally where I'm getting the paradigm from. And, you know, I just sort of uncharitably substitute it sometimes. And But, you know, when I give, like, and people are asking for, like, theory shit, and I tell them about fundamental principles, you know, of communist production or whatever, just because I think it's an interesting, like, thing to introduce people to, like, concepts of communism like that aren't Stalinist, you know, that are like a tangible proposal, you know, like, Hey, look, I don't know if something from a hundred years ago is going to help, but if you're interested, like here, like, (laughs) um, you know, people are like, yeah, I, I just, I don't want, but I don't want to go to work though. You know, like, like the realm of uh, heteronomy or whatever is, uh, is too alienating and oppressive. Like, there still is a hunger for people to like get out of that relationship entirely. But I don't know. I guess my you life go has... to what though? I mean, because well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause, cause in my life, in my life, I feel the totalitarian creep of all my hobbies becoming work. So, oh, uh, <laughs> I would much rather have a relationship with work where I could punch in and out. Like, yeah, I was about to say as a person who, who is both salaried and also, you know, all my side gigs and all my artistic passions have become petty bourgeois uh, rent-seeking activities. Um, uh, I actually sometimes miss just doing stupid, mindless work, um, which I don't... I know if I did it all the time, I would not miss it. So there, there's a certain amount of, like, this is stemming from the from this own alienation. Um and I've often wondered that with uh, with all these UBI proposals. I mean, what's what's interesting is Gortz has probably the most thought out. I'm totally not cribbing from Milton Friedman UBI proposal I've ever read. Although it's not in this book, it's in his book, The Critique of Economic Reason, from 1989. Um, and what I find interesting now is like, okay, we're in this particular moment where. Anti-work sentiments are high. People are striking, but that's not effective, so they're just quitting, um, etc. Also, 
there's also just a lot of people who left the labor pool for other reasons, be it childcare or age or whatever. Um, but the trend of the last 20 years is actually less and less of the population engaged in, in uh, work. I mean, if you look at the age of the average starting job in the last 40 years, like when I was in high school, and I'm going to sound totally like a boomer, although I'm just basically a 40-year-old, um, the average starting age of a job was 16, and now it's like 23. And the average starting age for a career is like 31. So more and more people have opted out of of uh, work in the sense that we mean here. One, until recently, there hasn't been work for everybody. And two, like, the work that you get in a lot of places isn't enough to live off anyway. So, like, if you have to choose between, say, I don't know, disability benefits and work, disability benefits pay slightly better, even though they're totally under the poverty line. Right. I mean, that's what you're seeing. Like, like the anti-work subreddit seems to be a part of a larger kind of collective realization about what the actual score is here. Because I think there's still a lot of hungover expectations from, I mean, honestly, the the whatever remnants there were of like the post-war labor compact or this idea that we could maintain that uh, if we just uh, have a more skilled labor force and their skills will somehow like translate into more money. Uh, not understanding like how skill rents work, <laughs> but uh, like, and it, it seems to be people because a lot of it is very much people kind of deconstructing the logic of what the inbuilt expectations seem to be for people and like, and contrasting it to the actual reality of their lived experience. Like that's what the content, a lot of what a lot of those posts are like, they're not even anywhere close to being at the level of like, you know, what would it mean to have a society without work? It's they, they're still at the kind of at the, you know, so damn, like I just want healthcare or I just want like, you know, three weeks paid leave or the Denmark, the Denmark accord or whatever, you know? I mean, you, you see a lot of like, just really like ex- some extreme guilt bargaining with work. Like, Oh man, someone was just saying, I wish I could just text my clients on discord all day instead of calling them. I would, I would work 10 hours a day, you know? And I was kind of like, you know, huh? Like, you know, going back and forth between goodbye to the working class and someone pining for, more computerized work on discord yeah it's it's interesting to to think about that i mean in some ways the one thing i will say that this indicates is oh my god did the early to mid 20th century marxist left really fail um like on a world historic level if 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 that's where we were if you could see this in 1979 Okay, but like, because what I what I do find fascinating is what this does and doesn't see, Um, because this book does not see neoliberalism coming, but it does. No, it kind of likes autonomy in a way that neoliberalism also likes autonomy and neoliberalism can do it better than so many anarchist experiments can because of the new frontiers of computers and like, you know, being able to take big data of people making autonomous decisions well, we, and we coordinate know. them without, well, a, could, you know, with a market, but you know, not directly. Neil can, can sell you the idea of autonomy. Like it can, it can re it can uh, 
recuperated. Yes. But yes, yes, yes. It can't. It can't. It can't. Or it can't give it to you in a way that's actually meaningful because, you know, the, the I think the. I think was it Margaret Thatcher who said the only thing worse than being exploited by capital is not being exploited by capital. Joan who said Robinson, that? the yeah, Joan Robinson, Robinson uh, Keynesian economist or a post-Keynesian economist. Yeah, like that. That really characterizes, I think, the neoliberal era maybe better than any other quote because it's like, yeah, they can they can deliver you like freedom from you know uh, the realm of necessity, but that you have nothing that like, you don't have you like you're fucked well it, yeah you're fucked and like the, there's you know at best uh you're paid way worse than you thought you were going to be in your hustles your, your hobbies become your hustles well the one thing i would say though it's not to push back on that but to complicate it the other reason why neoliberalism doesn't really deliver on autonomy but you wouldn't have seen that in the 80s is that the primary way neoliberalism has expanded after imperialism is actually compelled public-private markets and forcing you, without your will, to enter a market relation. That is actually fundamentally different than even classical entrepreneurial capital. So, you actually... It, neoliberalism quickly becomes the worst of both worlds. All your relationships mm-hmm. are yeah. commodified and marketized, yeah. but you're forced into them anyway. And, but I, I think it's interesting because I think Gorse realizes that. Uh, it, again, comes up in a later book, um, the Critique of Economic Reason. Um, it sounds like the, the second half of this thought is in that yeah, book. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it kind of is. Um, but what you see. Like, this is why Gorz doesn't pull the Foucault, okay? Foucault, in, in like, 81, 82, starts flirting with neoliberalism as, like, the logical extension of the, like, deterritorialization ideas and stuff that he'd seen um, in Deleuze and Guattari and this, that, and the other. Um, he doesn't ever become an explicit neoliberalism, but he does actually push Hayek and whatnot um, in the early 80s before he dies, we don't see that with Gors. Gors isn't that stupid, even though Gors's UBI isn't totally different from like the guaranteed tax benefits or whatever that uh, Milton Friedman was telling Nixon to push. So that's a fascinating problem. But Gors does seem to get some of the issues of like why neoliberal autonomy isn't going to deliver what they want but he again he doesn't see neoliberalism coming he sees he he can see that there's a fragmentation i was actually just looking at this passage in in the book um he can see that there's a fragmentation coming with uh, automation but he he still he still like list taylorism and uh and scientific management of the workplace and stuff as the primary forms of alienation coming out right now, basically the negative side of admin- of the administrative state under capital, which means that he still is basically operating under, like, Fordist social compact assumptions. Yeah, and I mean, there's good reason for that, is because a lot of the book is situated against Marx and the Marxist tradition. And he does not just limit it to the Marxist tradition. He says, look, this problem is in Marx. The proletariat in Marx is God. But, you know, there's still some smuggled in deep Hegelianism that's like really hard to like actually excise, you know, without destroying the apparatus. Because even after saying all this stuff about Hegelianism, he's like, well, you know, the the sub this like this new non-class 
they might not know what their like historical mission is, but uh, you know, I, I could think of one. Like, you know, <laughs> like it's maybe like he still actually maintains some of the teleological core of Marxism in a weird way. He has the Hegelian Marxist humanism, but would not with like kind of abandoning the Marxist part of it. So. Yeah, kind of like. Well, I mean, the, the critique of things is that is where he basically says like. The problem is that Marx is very vague on how, like, the proletarian, the proletarians can individually or in, in smaller, like, collective units realize, you know, like, their goal as a class. But I think part of the problem is that such a, such a prediction about that or such a statement about that is so sweeping that it's very hard to be specific without being, like, some kind of fortune teller. You know what I mean? And this, this has always been the problem. This has always been the problem is, like, figuring out, like, how, how, you know, you actually enact this in history. You know, like they seem like Marx identifies like certain trends that seem to be pointing in the direction of, you know, some kind of possibility of creating society post scarcity and, you know, creating a class that has like one big thing in common that they could possibly organize along. But how does, you know, how does that actually play out? And the way that it played out historically was that the bourgeoisie was much better at, uh, sowing like divisions within the working class such that achieving that kind of like sweeping social unity uh wasn't it, it was never enough there was never enough to like overcome like the state and like bourgeois forces uh, at at a large enough level to like win a global civil war against capital yeah and he really nails the way that capitalism kind of tears people apart. It doesn't like discipline them to make, to, you know, take the productive apparatus. Like he draws the painful example of, you know, the soldiers of an army seizing the army because they've been disciplined by the army. Like, no, that's not how that works. Like, (laughs) um, you know, for the most part, the soldiers are torn up by war. They don't, thereby become better at like running the military no but there was a one point in history where they did and so no yeah they did like in like but that's you don't i guess i don't see that anymore like well yeah i mean i just i was thinking about it today because it didn't just happen in the soviet union and what would become the soviet union it also happened in germany it just went the other way it went towards the nationalist but like, and thus later on the fascist. But like the, the aftermath of the war was actually they came back as a unified force, um, who believed in like the great betrayal theory, um, and partly because it, there are some accidents of history that led to that. But, but it is weird that like I can't ima- like. Could you imagine that happening with Vietnam? No, well, no, no. That's that's that is more or less the example I'm thinking of or Iraq or something like just the way that modern warfare choose, well, you know, contemporary warfare, whatever, whatever periodization we'd like to make, um, choose through people and doesn't necessarily, you know, give them like a sweeping, doesn't necessarily give them like a, a master's degree in military strategy. Yeah. No, like, actually, actually it's interesting. Even, even in the United States army, which has fairly autonomous, um, uh, and somewhat egalitarian, not, not really egalitarian, but somewhat egalitarian yeah, for yeah. military, like, arrangements of, like, troop movement, you still don't have a sense where, like, you, you, that that most people who are not 
even if their officers actually have a strong grasp of like military strategy, they have a strong grasp of like skirmish strategy because that's all they need to survive. And um, that is different from what you saw in World War One in particular. And that's almost like I, I would almost venture to say the World War One situation is almost world historically unique. Yeah, like I can't actually that... think of other times that's happened. That's more or less what I was going to say. Like, yeah, no, there is a counterexample, a meaningful counterexample in the, you know, in the thick of things. And, you know, I don't know, probably partially inspired by this vision, you know, that we're dismantling here that could have, you know, could have come to pass at one point. Like, um, so I don't know. People in the past had reasons for believing what they believed, but we have the benefit of hindsight and... It's just, yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine. Not that, I don't know. The, the really salient point here is that this isn't the kind of thing that you can take over not only very easily, but if you took it over and like ran it for like, just like a few days, you would like be compelled to recapitulate a lot of the things because it's not like direct, like ownership or, you know, something that is the problem. There's a, there's power relations inside economics, inside the economic relations, inside the economic structures that are all already there in the production apparatus, to some extent, just built in technically. The book is quite sweeping about this. And this is the first problem I have about the book is that it's not, you know, it's like, maybe it means to be more selective about, you know, capitalist technology, but it just seems to think, it sounds a little like Ted Kaczynski, you know what I mean? Like, it just sounds kind of like, like he sounds like yeah, the whole logistics grid's got to go. Anything that's too complicated, but he later says the opposite. He later says the opposite. But towards the beginning of the book, uh, it sounds a lot like anything that's too big to do communistically, we just shouldn't fucking do it. And you know, even a, nu- a nuclear power plant is is an example of something that you know will recapitulate. Like he he brings it up, but later he says it's the exact opposite, which is interesting. <laughs> Well, well, he tries. He tries to split the difference where he's like, "Well, maybe we can like have like mid-level, you know, like it's like small is beautiful, and if we could just have like mid-level organization and use of like industry or whatever, like it, it isn't entirely I, clear like what he means." Th- but but that's I, that's the, no, I kind of agree with what he's saying, but there's like he's not really making the proposal. He's just sort of well, small isn't going to work, and big isn't going to work. So so let's have like medium level power plants for local logistic grids but not efficient well, ones <laughs> i mean I, th- I, th- I think i think maybe he overstates the extent to which because i see this like in in his critique of in his like characterization of because he cre- he critiques like the traditional marxist uh explanations for fascism you know uh the, the more oh, class-based yeah. analysis for how it emerges but his critique is, well, actually fascism emerges because administrative society is absent either any kind of sovereign or any like locus site of responsibility and is therefore uh, deeply like alienating to people. And so they turn to like uh, Bonapartism and fascism in particular in like the modern era because it scratches a certain like psychological age that people have. But if that's true, like why doesn't like fascism in particular like emerge in every like industrial society, right? Well, like, he... His, 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 he, he it, more or less says that the reason that it didn't happen in France is because there was no real great inspiring leader that people could get behind in the same way. Uh, like he, that is 
if, you know, just by his explanation and like the footnotes about, uh, you know, he goes through like Patan, Patan and, um, what's his face? De Gaulle. And, and just says, yeah, you know, that, that guy's too fat. That guy's, you know, too much. Yeah, of that's a not heart. a very convincing yeah. explanation. <laughs> no. Yeah, because why would I, because it's not just France that doesn't have explicitly fascist movements that take control. I mean, the other thing I would say, like, this, you know how I was hinting that there's some Frankfurt School influence on this? There's some strong Frankfurt yeah. School influence on no, this. And, and, it's, <laughs> and it's good. It makes it good. The Frankfurt School, after going through all the critical theory I can, like, I, I still come back to the Frankfurt School and go like, you know what? Some of this shit, some of this shit's okay. Like, some of this shit yeah, is really the, like trying to think the through the big problems. But the Frankfurt School basically does argue that everything is fascist. Oh, yeah. Like, it, no, like, 100%. That modernity is just crypto-fascism. That's the conclusion <laughs> that they come to. And if we think that, you know, the mono, like capitalism forcing us to monetize our like a communist reading group is totalitarian, then they're not wrong. Like, right. Like, right. But like, like, fa- like fascism is, ha- I think is a distinct thing. Otherwise you just call it like, you know, like mass society or whatever. But I actually, I brought that, I brought that point up uh, to relate that to, I think on some level he, I, I don't know. I feel like maybe he overstates like how, how intrinsically, alienating like these systems can be and because like the external constraint that was put on different like socialist experiments uh historically was it was not just that they had to manage uh manage like industry that had been like deeply subsumed to capital or build up industry along similarly capitalist lines it's that they also had to like fight like a protracted global civil war against capitalism and in in the midst of industrialized warfare which is a huge constraint and like a huge burden and you know that's why you know the the nice socialism that everybody points to in you know like say like scandinavia or whatever like they didn't have that constraint and so they were able to develop like a more like you know small scale (laughs) uh kind of like thing that he's talking about here um and it isn't it may be experienced uh in quite like the same alienating way that you know, like the worst of capitalism or the worst of the Eastern Bloc had to offer. Yeah, because I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, the moralistic socialist morality or the, you know, the moralistic socialist ideology really hit different in Sweden than it did in, you know, what is now Latvia, for instance. Like, it just, it probably hit pretty different. Um, But I think ultimately, like, and kind of, when you get a little taste of the social conservatism of uh, some of the old social democratic movements, like um, there's, there's still something that's fundamentally just right about his critique of socialist morality and um, our, like our needs for autonomy that are like, you know, unquestionably as he's writing the book, these needs for autonomy are better met by capitalism than by the, you know, the, the Soviet bloc or whatever, like, now, I'm going to preface it like this, right? Let us not besmirch the grand word autonomy. Um, autonomy is like a, a fundamental value. And, you know, liberty is the value that Marx had. He was such an edgelord about values, but it was the one that he would cop to actually having is, is his value for liberty. So I, I don't, you know, I'm not um, trying to... 
we like liberty and autonomy has to be like the the essential baseline upon which we have the critique of you know bourgeois right or whatever because um i mean autonomy for me has come up a lot recently when i'm thinking about uh covid and what's wrong with the autonomous response to covid and how anarchists and autonomists have to deal with people essentially calling their bluff in a way that they only care about liberty when there are other values that socialists care about on some level. And I, you know, after reading a bunch of like evolutionary, like anthropology and like fucking sociology, you know, I realized that I am an egalitarian, even though if, even though I don't like Sometimes I don't think I'm one because I don't want a world of abstract equality. I want real sensuous difference factor, blah, 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 blah. But, the, you know, the point is that, that there are like these social values that aren't just you can, you know, someone isn't directly telling you what to do that, you know, more like more or less like. Well, here's the problem. OK, here's the problem in with autonomy um, as a, like a central focus for a political movement under capitalism, really even under mass society in general, because like. Typically, like, especially within capitalism, your autonomy will be purchased at the expense of somebody else, right? Like, you, you'll basically engage in either, like, rent-seeking behaviors or you will uh, be able to skim, skim some surplus value if you're not exploiting somebody directly within the realm of a business, right? Um, and so, like, there – I mean, yes, like, there should be – and I, I, I understand, like, the dual society and the realm of necessity and autonomy – if we're talking, if we're trying to basically envision like high communism, because you would want, or you know, a socialist transitional stage, because you, we talked about this before, you would want a sphere where things were subject to some kind of like labor-based remuneration, and there were things that were coordinated with a general social plan. But then there would be other areas of like production and pursuit that would basically be like the social equivalent of like a hobby, but like like a mass scale with like you know everybody pursuing like their own interests. Sometimes individually, sometimes collectively, and those would be those would be two like demarcated spheres that would be considered within the concept of planning. And but in a sense that he, he's right that the diminishment of autonomy is politically motivated, but it's also kind of, um, you know, you basically have to contrapose like a projected like future utopian autonomy against capitalist autonomy because if you're looking for autonomy immediately, like within this lifetime. The best way to get it would be to buy a lottery ticket uh, to try and get into the bourgeoisie and, you know, basically just benefit from the material exploitation. Otherwise, you know, the only way that you can sustain uh, a sense of sacrifice needed to produce this is either through some kind is usually through some kind of millenary vision that the end of capitalism is at hand within our lifetimes or at least you we can set the stage for future generations people would be willing to uh, sacrifice for uh in order to build so i mean he he is right about that but on some level you know at the same time how look i'm open to the idea that you know we could probably like the left could prioritize autonomy as like a value um in, in an immediate sense, but how would you do that, actually? And I, I didn't seem to find a clear answer here. Well, like, the, the virtue of the fundamental principles proposal is that it preserves, um, you know, the ability to, like, just kind of get whatever goods you want. It preserves a lot of, like, cap like bullshit capitalist bourgeois autonomy that, you know, like, we take for granted, but, you know, 
it was a big it deal does at so one without point. Markets and and if you have a strong enough cybernetic system, would even do so without many many hours of meetings. But um, right, right. Like, well, and what he says towards the end of the book is essentially we just need to like come up with a plan for this, uh, which is okay, fair. Yeah, which uh, sorry, buddy, read fundamental principles. You know, I got your realm of necessity right here, but you know, but in fundamental principles, they don't think of that as a state, even though it's the big workers' council, you know, like pyramid, whatever, which doesn't really hold that much truck with him for a good reason. Actually, is that he believes the economy is too complex for something like that to manage, and funnily enough, he doesn't catch the the other left accelerationist point he has ubi and you know another book but he doesn't have that you know cybernetics actually can kind of manage these things maybe um much more equitably than would have been possible before he is much more like uh is it virillo the guy who believes that cybernetics uh... is is bound to be used against the proletariat cannot be used for something emancipatory and, and most of actually the post-structuralist book. Right. Uh, and also, frankly, the Frankfurt School. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, believe, yeah. Believe yeah. That, that the teleological orientation of technology is innately capitalist, and, so, and thus cybernetics will be innately capitalist, which I agree that capitalist cybernetics will be capitalist, but like um, there are other kinds of cybernetics, but they don't even consider that as a possibility. Um, yeah, which I think is a... Does that so? I, I mean, like, I act, I to- completely understand their Black Mirror skepticism, but I also think it's sort of a disastrous mistake. Like, um, that like we 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 can't afford to be that paranoid. We have to use the tools we have available, you know, to replace the this economy that's destroying the world. <laughs> like, I don't know how we're we're gonna do it ever, but it would be cool if we had some idea of what that might look like. Do you think some of that like paranoia that they have is like a little bit like of a hangover from kind of Stalinist like terror of like utilizing markets in order to like you, like utilizing the value form in order to develop the means of production like it has to be done like in non-capital in a non-capitalistic way yeah I think that's a lot yeah. of it uh, and I also think it's a lot of it is also like the way fascists tried to use total social mobility and cybernetics can sound like uh, total social mobility, but you know, with technology, but the the multiple inputs in in aggregate to whole autonomy elements of it are not factored in, and so like I I mean it it's I I think the greatest irony of the twentieth century is it actually is capitalism that proves a socialist development is a feasible development technologically like like uh you know (laughs) a a little descriptive love to hilferding you know in retrospect that you know something you know approaching the the ability to do planning you know would be developed in like a para-bourgeois logic but not the state one you know this weird algorithmic one but the other thing that we have to admit is without both the Soviet Union and capitalist wartime footing, that would have never happened. Because the kind of detente that allowed for the development of like cybernetic principles to develop, say, the Internet, was basically, hey, uh, we're going to use this for military R&D. We'll give it to capitalists, but the capitalists have to agree not to compete against each other with it. And then you have one basically um inventor 
um, in, in the 1990s who also does that with the World Wide Web and never, ever, ever tries to patent it. So those two things are, one is luck and the other is like wartime detente between capitalist firms, you know, because all, all, all it would have taken actually for the internet as we know it not to have happened is the dude panting in it, uh, panting in it in 90 and making it a uh, proprietary software that would have ended the internet from developing as we know it. So close. Well, I know the Soviet Union, they were, they were debating developing something similar along those lines, too, like in the 50s, is my understanding. Yeah, yeah, they but, totally but were. They, I mean, yeah, but cybernetics cyber was, was a bourgeois deviation, of course, uh, that had nothing to do with uh, dialectics. Um, yeah. Uh, which, you know, eh, world historic, like, errors of his, like, come on. Like, that's that's a pretty, yeah. that's a huge one. Like, like even, even EndNote said, if all of the fucking, like, Stalinism, if it got to communism, it would have been totally worth it. Like... <laughs> like yeah. if they just pushed the start the internet button you know and like f- figured out how to make like Stakhanov vines you know what i mean it would have all been fine like if they could have just yeah if they could just convince them like <laughs> listen this thing's gonna increase corn yields by like 500 percent. you, you yeah. have to let us do this yeah Stakhanov, uh whatever i can't remember that guy's name you know what i'm smoking those thoughts and that's great i'm yeah i'm just the, just the fucking Autonomy and liberty and use value in my brain. I'm going to for- I'm gonna well, forget I mean, it, major things about Bolshevik history. Uh, yeah. Um, what? Uh, Kol Magorov um, is the Soviet mathematician who was kind of rejected. But uh, I mean, it, it's crazy, man, because like not only do you have computational complexity, the guy basically invents algorithmic information theory. And. <laughs> and uh, the Soviets don't appreciate that either. No, so many so- brilliant Russian <laughs> scientists, their story starts off with, inspired by the principles of Marxism-Leninism, they decide to apply the, you know, their, their <laughs> immortal science to something tangible, and they create this amazing <laughs> thing. And then the Soviet bureaucracy takes a shit right on them. And, 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 and then they leave, you know, with, like, And then they crying, give it to the capitalist and, world. And the capitalists are so happy. Like, and, and they just, like, wander into the arms of capitalism because the Soviet bureaucracy, like, after inspiring them with... You know, they accidentally inspired them with like great, you know, scientific like ideas just because they have this like fucking ideology lying around. Some of the raw material was good. They accidentally inspire just in the most incredible like, yeah, I kind of figured out how to get that material manifold working like Marx wanted, you know. Um, yeah. And this, they just like, get get the fuck out of here. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's funny because like early Norbert Wiener and stuff, it's absolutely clear that he's pulling from Soviet technology, like, and also dialectics. I mean, so it's right. Because it's, it's, di- dialectics yeah. that makes sense. Dialectical materialism, I should say, that makes sense is cybernetic is feedback loops is, you know, it's not like, well, how does a how does a, a, an idea think itself, you know, like, get, just, yeah, none of this. You don't need any of that. Like, just get, just get rid of that stuff. It's just um, fucking purge that from your brain. Like, but, but I do think, I mean, what's interesting, right. Is the reaction here to structuralism. Um, Love it. But also the reaction to Gorse would maintain for the rest of his life that he was actually maintaining a kind of Marxist humanism against like other kinds of weirdly dogmatic Marxist humanisms. No, like, I, I feel that. I feel that here. 
And just because of his acknowledgement of structures, he does it in a humanist way. Like he, that's, that's the use of the Frankfurt schools. You don't have to abandon like humanism to discuss structures. Yeah. And he, and he also doesn't abandon autonomy because of his existentialism. Like that's the other thing we've kind of like dropped is that's an existentialist value. It's an existentialist value and it's the right one. And he does it better. He balances it better than Sartre does because Sartre is terribly inconsistent on this. Like, <laughs> well, I mean, it's not like existentialists were major contributors to fascism or anything. So being inconsistent on this is not particularly weird historically. No, but, um, <laughs> but I mean, but we, I guess we've been beating around the bush, even though we said it in the end, his answer is basically, I don't know. Let's use the modern nation state to like have an administrative state to do this through the orientation of the non-class as a universal subject. Uh, whatever. Have a nice day. Yeah, whatever. Fucking Baudrillard just pulls up in a Hummer, stretch Hummer from the future. <laughs> just like, are you out of your fucking mind? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, you know, and I mean, Gorse lived to eighty-four. Uh, but he did kill himself, so, you know, he, uh, really did his, value autonomy. His wife um, developed a terminal illness, and they decided that they and didn't they, want to outlive each other. Right, uh, I know. Or, it's, 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 yeah. it, is, it is sweet. Um, and also, it's hard to feel bad for a guy killing himself at 84. But It, yeah. it sounds... Yeah. Sound, no, 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 no. He did, you know... He, 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 I, think, I think that was like... I don't know. That's a nice uh, philosophical exit. That's classy. It's real classy. Right. <laughs> he's a he's a he's a wife guy. Yeah, yeah, big wife guy. You got you got to respect that. Yeah. Well, he has an interesting. I mean, we we're talking about like you know in that section. He does have an interesting definition of the state. So he basically says like, mm-hmm. yeah, if the state or the apparatus of the law is understood as a distinct locus in which the necessities of production and communal life are embodied in external laws and obligations, that any society or market society that abolishes the state thereby loses all capacity to challenge the material necessities of its own functioning. So like, this is, this is a different definition than like the classical Marxist uh, definition of like the state as an instrument of class domination. Uh, for him, like the state is essentially the site at which like a mode of production is like fixated and regulated. Yeah, I mean, it's, he's actually his definition is Lasallian, um, although with the caveat that since the late nineteen twenties, there was a tendency to try to claim off of a a, a quote by Lenin that I can't exactly remember that class antagonism between different elements of the bourgeoisie had made the state essentially an independent actor and thus it was up for grabs. But his, his definition is basically a mixture of that and just pure Lasallianism, which sees the state as a neutral, um, a kind of neutral administrative power. And I, I also think that there was, there was some of that in the Frankfurt school too, not in the Frankfurt School we're more familiar with, but in the Frederick Pollock economic theory of the Frankfurt School and his theory of the administrative class. That 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 weird take on the state does kind of make sense of why I was thinking throughout the book of our discussion on fundamental principles when you're thinking about the realm of autonomy, realm of heteronomy, and like you know, arguably work has melted into play in the realm in the uh, in the, you know the public side of the labor tokens proposal, but like there's still very clearly, you know, a place where there's some kind of like quantified 
accounted for economic exchange going on um, in the way that he's suggesting. So it kind of worked. But then I, you know, when he when you he introduces the language of the state and, you know, when he, you know, <laughs> rips the tablecloth off the item and you, know, you see the whole state. Like you can see that you can see the whole state, and um, it it was disarming, right? Because then it's 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 just asking you, it's suggesting to you that you kind of look at this as like the state and the bourgeois, like what we know is the bourgeois state, right? Like whatever continuities there were between the Soviet Union and you know the U.S. government, right? Like that thing. It's it's just yeah. There's something so incongruous there, but I guess the, his argument, and it is, I think, the implicit one that we deal with all the time, and certainly in COVID, I've had to eventually just say, look, there's there's no other collective actor here. There's no other collective intelligence that's going to ad- administer this, that's going to hold back industry, that's you know going to do something for the public good. And it's kind of true, but that's self-limiting. If you really say only... If you really kind of dig into it the way that he does, there's it's terrifying. It's it's uh it's autonomous statism. But for him, even like a even the state like at the level of like a charismatic leader, you know, like a a red tier guy with a club who's bigger and has like a gang of smaller guys that he bullies and makes do it as well. Like to him, like basically any leader. It is like someone who's able able to demand and obtain submission to necessity as a submission to their own person. So for him, like the state is literally the site at which necessity is socially managed. And so, you know, you could substitute that to say that, you know, there has to be some kind of like social management of necessity. Uh, and like abstract that from it, it has to like, it has to be located in the site of the state. But, you know, I think pretty much any transition any 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 transition like out of capitalism is is going to have to involve essentially on some level indirectly or indirectly reproducing the state. I don't think that I don't think it would last forever, but I, I have a hard time. You know, I I still believe that like the dictatorship of the proletariat is the way to go. Like you have to have like the proletariat as some kind of dominant force over like the remnants of you know the the bourgeoisie as they sort of are, are gradually assimilated into the rest of society. I I, uh, I totally. I mean, I suppose that's why we're not anarchist, like <laughs> yeah, um, more more or less. Yeah. yeah, that's the last one of the last threats, really. Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, like, I actually often answer people, you know, about my politics, about my differences from anarchism. I'm just like, I'm just slower because I don't think we can replace the the state as a collective actor overnight any more than I think we could replace. I mean, particularly if you're also getting rid of the firm. So like, yeah, right. What do you got? Um, What's left? And <laughs> I yeah. know there's there's there there With are the things. Church? That's yeah. not great. No, no, um, no, no. But yeah, the media also pretty awful. There's hypothetical so... entities we could replace it with the uh, platonic reality of pi or something. I, I don't know. I mean, like but, but, really, yeah, I... like it, it gets kind of extreme. Well, I, also there's the anarchist answer, but where I think they're just renaming functions of the state something cooler. <laughs> they're like, well, we have the council. I'm like, well, that's just a cancelous state, though. Like, <laughs> it's like that episode of South Park where they're talking to the hippies and like, yeah, man, we could just have our own community, and like, we could have a guy who makes bread and like a guy who, who like makes houses. And they're like, you mean like you mean a town? 
you know, I mean, part of the problem with like anarchism is like, I think a lot of people come to it because they don't, they didn't want to say like communism. It's just for, you know, well, historical well, reasons. Also, they, they probably hate their job and th- use the gulag as an ex- as like the ex- exaggerated way about how they feel, you know, about their job because, you know, it, it feels like to, to someone that has, you know, I don't know, standards of someone on the internet right now and you know that if you you look out there and you see the ceiling of interesting things that you could be doing and you're at your fucking job like your expectations you know versus your reality is just like is way different is way different than all of the people we read about like 100 years ago i get that but i also think this i mean i also have to put anarchism in its own historical context to kind of defend it a little bit because it did not posit that there wouldn't be governance um, that, you know, or even work. It posited initially that there wouldn't be a bourgeois state and that the state was the bourgeois state. And Marx also agreed with them that the state was the bourgeois state, but that there's there'd be so many elements of the state maintained in the transition to communism, even under the dictatorship of the proletariat, to call it something else would be dishonest, right? Yeah. So that's that's sort of the the debate at hand, and you know we can we can do the thing that anarchists and Marxists do, where you count like the the, the scorecard of Bakunin and the scorecard of Marx and weigh them against each other. But yeah, like, who who said the n word more times? Right, Go. Yeah, right. <laughs> like who hated Jews more? Go. Um, yeah. There's no but, hatred like self hatred. Right, <laughs> but um, but the 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 real the real rub is like there is a sense in which the Bakuninists were right that the Marxists never start to dismantle the state at all, um, at least so far, and there is also a sense in which like if you imagine doing I mean COVID's per, a perfect proof of that if you imagine doing what the immediatist anarchists say we should do. Like a lot, like more more population than not would die, like in, in the immediate well, yeah. transition. Like, and the anarchist arguments I'm characterizing aren't like actual theorists. It's just like stupid people I talked to. Like yeah, it's 10 like years the, ago. the people you met in college. Who, no, but you know, like, yeah. but even in some of like the better formulations, uh, it carries with it such a risk of of you know the logistics grid like getting knocked off um that it's i don't know like <laughs> what are we going to do with all this nuclear waste but, like. but, they're, but, they're, but they're also not wrong about look how that reinforces hierarchy look how that reinforces state i complete you know i have to agree with you there it totally does also yeah this reactor is going to melt um but to be i don't know to be more fair to anarchists right like there is at a certain point a level of institutional design that like <sighs> You know, that concept of the modern state versus like, like as the state and just dismantling the modern state as being the anarcho-Marxist kind of pact, you know, like that came to me rather late because I was more familiar with the angles kind of historical materialism approach that there are different forms of the state throughout history. And, you know, for the periods of history that I looked at, there were some clear organs that looked like states to me, you know? So that was pretty plausible to me. So the idea of abolition of state seems to 
if you're taking that like long-term anthropological point of view, suggests something much more radical um, and, and maybe even much more unthinkable because just dismantling the modern state is one thing, dismantling all of the institutions of governance that have you know existed throughout history, quite another. And so I've always approached the idea of abolition of state as essentially, you know, maximal autonomy institutional design. Like I, I, I've never really been able to, and maybe, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm just like, you know, branded by the state, you know, that I, I'm so domesticated. I can't imagine it not being there, but um, yeah, it does. It does seem like stuff that isn't economic directly, which, you know, puts me a little more at odds with this than say the fundamental principle stuff, which they're like, Oh yeah, well the economy's political. Tons of shit is political. We're going to all hash it out in a big pyramid of pancakes, big stack of pancakes, big workers councils. You know, we're, we're, you know, we're all going to discuss all those issues all the time and it's going to be cool. So I mean, like the councilists are kind of recognize this and are actually kind of better, even though like this has a critique of councilism in it that I kind of agree with. I also think, Councilists kind of, kind of are tackling some of this stuff like way earlier, and humanists like Marxist humanists have to rederive the good stuff out of Leninism, and that straining process takes so much time for them to grow out of the fucking delusions. Like that, that by the by the end, they're like these fucking, there are these they are like kind of husks and corpses, you know. <laughs> um, well, I mean, by the end, Marxist humanism has traditionally become kind of an eschatology where you pick your revolutionary subject to place the traditional industrial working class, and you just uh, actively argue to maintain the center, the 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 center of capital, but with progressive social values, a la the new left, until the eschatology of the revolution, of which you do not believe anything will make happen, but the workers will. So, you know, good luck with that, but. Um, that is where it has traditionally gone. And yeah, I mean, yeah, his critique of councilism stings, but at the same time, like that's kind of historically why the workers movement was supposed to have like both a political and labor based section, because there is a, there is a coordinative function that has to happen somewhere. Yeah. Um, you know, he makes, he makes a kind of interesting parallel with women's work, which I think was strange. That was actually interesting, but weird. It's, it's, there's a bit of, oh, actually, you know, women's work prefigures the realm of autonomy. On the other hand, in a footnote, I will acknowledge that a lot of this is captive reproductive labor. But anyway, like I was saying, um, (laughs) really, you know, what women do in their houses because they can't leave because I, I guess the French socialists just decided it was okay for women to work without getting their husband's permission first. Um, that just happened like in the seventies. And so that wasn't that long ago. So yeah, I guess if you just kind of bracket that whole thing off, you fucking disgusting frog, like then, like (laughs) then I can kind of see what he's talking about because a lot of housework is you do it for the love. Right. But man, like that's, that's where the more cynical, like postmodernists, I think, really have their time to shine against his framework, but not the fucking airy fairy ones, not the like the not the not the ones that are so popular, like popular, but like drunk on the possibility 
of of you know the new combinations and stuff. Only the most cynical ones have something really sharp to say here. That, so by the way, cynical, you mean Baudrillard? Baudrillard, so. you know, some readings of Foucault, right? Like, right. That's it. Foucault, depending on the day, right? The, yeah, that section. That section also like struck me as very weird, where he's like, okay, uh, like they the women's movement could possibly be like the vanguard of post-war struggle to the extent that it, like it somehow extends domestic labor. And like, like asserts like the centrality of economic values and autonomous activities. But like, what does that mean? You know what, what I mean? What does that mean? Like, been- they they start okay. First, we decommodify like washing dishes. Then we decommodify. I don't know, like the the mining or something. Like, what is he talking about? Uh, what What's interesting to me is that it's just like it's sort of just the logical inverse of wages for housework, which is is a much yeah. more popular pamphlet than it was campaign. As a campaign, from what I understand, it went nowhere. But as a pamphlet, you know, it has an afterlife, um, and it, it was not a prop- it was not a popular proposal, and perhaps you know the fact that it was not, <laughs> you know, can say something in Gore's direction that like, although and but Gore's also makes the parallel point that if you tried to quantify that work, you could not, you, you, the richest person couldn't actually remunerate that remunerate that work at the correct rate, like. I'm, I wonder if that's true. I, I, I've I've seen this like replicated in you know across economics, like and yeah, the amount of the like if if you paid people like the wages you're supposed to pay for like that kind of work, yeah, no fucking way. Like, yeah, it's it's definitely true. Like, it's just that like it is capitalism kind of is less sexist than the post-war compromise in a bizarre way. Like there is an emergent sexism in capitalism. Of course, I'm not going to pretend there's no wage gap, but, um, but you know, now reproductive labor and women aren't synonymous. It's, you know, still complicated and there's, you know, predominantly still like, you know, women of color doing a lot of the, uh, you know, care marked service work, whatever, like, you know, we can go on and on about that, but um, but I don't know. Capitalism has made this like a little more. It's it's kind of like expanded this to to, and I guess I you know what Gore's does actually mention this. Gore's mentions that capitalism has kind of expanded. So I'm going to give Gore some credit. I mean, you know, he was a wife guy after all. I gotta you know he's he's, he's a nice he's a nice frog. Um, you know, he does mention that uh, capitalism has kind of brought this problematic up for men and women. Um, and I guess he was probably, you know, watching a bunch of women go to work like in France in a way that they hadn't before. Um, and you know, that, that's a weird, like that's a, you know, that was probably a weird horseshoe proposal in France for a long time where the, you know, the mainstream of socialism was for the traditional labor movements, like family wage thing. Yeah, I don't know. There, there is some like perceptive stuff there, but it's, it's, it's very weird how one could put that aside so quickly. In theory, the, the uh, people have the opposite preference. Uh, you know, it's, it's to like, well, first let's acknowledge that this is all, this is all fucked up, right? Like, <laughs> this is super fucked up, <laughs> and this arrangement is actually exploitative and bad. Um, but also, like, you know, it's nice to take care of your kid. You know, like. <laughs> I. I... It seems, it seems to be, I guess maybe you could, with the decommodification of women's work, 
I don't I actually that that argument doesn't make sense to me the more I think about it. Well, I mean, that's that, you know, that that is what like, you know, national compact people want, like, especially like and now it's a very right wing position. Right. This is nowhere in popular like it's it's not acceptable in popular culture to be like, yeah, I think, you know, we should just, you know, let the men work and let women do women stuff like that's completely untenable now. Like that you would have to have like a fascist reaction to reinstate some reinstate something like that. Like you're not going to like you will convince some women to, you know, just drop out of the workforce because they have to take care of their kids. Like, okay. Yeah. But you're not going to convince them to like n- not allow them to come back for an exchange for a family. Right. No, that, wage. Yeah. That, that it wouldn't happen in a leftist way because it's not like a, even close to a centrist idea anymore. Like, that context is totally different and, you know, can point us to like, you know, we're always periodizing about like capitalism, you know, because that's what Marxists care about. But in terms of gender stuff, this guy's from another dimension in a way. And it's amazing the kind of like break that there is with that sort of thought. I, I don't know. I don't know how many like materialist histories of like, you know, the period is periodizing breaks of gender or whatever there are. Um, I'm sure there's plenty. I haven't read them. And I, I just sort of wonder what that would taking cores and, you know, more end notes is like more analytical Brennerist, like take of gores, uh, you know, anarcho Brennerist, whatever, like reading of gores into, into the, I, I sort of wonder what that, that kind of stuff would look like you're taking gender stuff into account in a in a really vulgar like trying to see what a bunch of people see and reconciling it like if there is a flaw in human nature that makes people weirdly fashy that you can let capitalism make might jiggle loose before you know communism is possible it, it would probably be around sex and gender huh. well so how do we currently feel about to the working class. I mean, I see him as grappling, you know, with some genuine problems. And I do like his his strict emphasis on reduction of necessary labor time. I think that's very important. I think maybe he's better at like characterizing this impasse and finding a way out of it. And uh I do also think he's like uh excessively hard on Marx, but you know, it's understandable given given uh the historical juncture he was writing within. Yeah. I I similarly think he's excessively hard on Marx. Uh, something I think also in notes is guilty of. Um, yeah. But I I would say that I found the first half of this book really really like almost invigorating because it you know I often feel like I'm being gaslit by people who are trying to tell me there's a workers movement when right. I you know like <laughs> somewhere in the ether. What you know, with 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 industrial style unions that just somehow exist, and look, I've I've been there, and I, like I I let people talk me into it because what a nice world it sounds like to me, like right. C- we just need our industrial unions back, and it doesn't even deal with the fact that it doesn't make sense for franchises or service sector industries or yeah. But um, so yeah, I get that. Um. But I find the answer, I find the non-answer super frustrating. Like I find like to me, this is an even bigger cop out than like when when communizers go, I don't know, affinity groups or non-movements or something. Yeah. 
I know let's use the state again because like th- that's the first like oh we could just do socialism through the state right like why not like let's go back to Lasallianism again <laughs> like it, like after all that insight and especially the insight that the proletariat and I guess we've desacralized what the proletariat wants right but I, I don't know I think Marxism should have something to do with you know the the species being frustrated like emanations of the proletariat fucking you know whatever you think of it like the fact that the proletariat like just doesn't like <laughs> you know doesn't want to uh, submit to state authority the proletariat doesn't want to submit to state authority it's actually like a big implicit theme of this book and the answer is still the state well, and, but the other problem is like just the way he characterizes like the non-class does it does not inspire confidence that this thing is capable of getting out of its situation, because even by his own admission, all of the solutions are basically individualistic, and this is the problem with the moment that we're in right now, like with the anti-work stuff, is that you know absent some ability to collectively organize, you just quit your job, you know, and. Uh, if maybe if if enough people do that and just drop out of the system at the same time that can tighten the labor market to you know improve things for people who are working but you're still you're still not getting like uh shared sacrifice or an evenly distributed share of this problem and so you're still stuck in the realm of like individual coping mechanisms within the system which they can re- if they can recuperate collective struggle in the form of like buying off trade unions or making like a labor aristocracy they can certainly find ways uh to route that very quickly we're, we're subsuming like an entire like revolutionary history into rebuilding capitalism like you know like society of the spectacle level like up is down shit like yes they can recuperate it however i also don't believe we've like it's not as if the left are these like strategic super soldiers that know exactly how to organize at, like you know the proletariat and how to like you know give them their like their best like <laughs> you know like all right look i've been studying this i've been studying communism for 10 years which means i have all this great tactical advice for how to you know like navigate neoliberal hellscapes that we're all familiar with like yeah i, I have a certification program from marxist.org right right right, right. You, yeah. you have to dig to find it but it's in there yeah <laughs> like there's there there isn't like uh i don't know I don't think we've like come to the limits of like how intellectuals can maybe aid the proletariat so that this non-class could get something together. Like, because over time, like stuff like anti-work, you know, on Reddit, for instance, you know, again, just one like relatively popular like example that's going to come up over and over again in this sort of end notes gores kind of way of looking at things because labor is still the central contradiction of society, but the non-identity with labor is part of the essential tension right now. And we should expect that future Marxist politics are going to be done on this axis on freedom from work on freedom from being a worker and this orientation you know is something that i don't know it's it's it, you have to let go of something romantic from the past to get it 
And if you've come to the Marxist left to get away from how harsh the situation is, you know, it's just, I don't know. There's a hard sell. And in a weird way, like our, our, our religious hopes deflected into the proletariat kind of make it so that we can't help. And we have to get past that in order to ever live up to our roles as Marxist intellectuals, whatever that would be. Uh, I mean, so we are saying Gorse bad. Uh, I don't, I don't know. No, the problem is that he's so, he's so, he tells so much truth. Like I, the first half of this book, it should be like, you kind of required reading like in a way like it it fun, it fundamentally characterizes the economic break from the labor history that marxists were pushing their strategy in and after this break and gores nails it that the fact that workers don't want to organize in the same way because you know the structure of shit is different means that all the old strategies are kind of out the window because they were all pre- you know they all had as this is essential condition that you know they were assuming that you could just oh yeah yeah just go to the union you know just go to the go to where the working class is uh you know like go to your center of workers power in your life you know you know the one and well it's i, I mean read this it does require i think uh a strong accompanying cuz like he because he's trying to write in the spirit of the young marx he phrases things in like similarly idealistic ways and also similarly uh Similarly, basically, sort of just making claims uh, without like a ton of citations. So that that can make it tricky to pull apart this framework because there is like a mixture of, like, for instance, the way that he talks about how trade union, like, how basically meeting trade union demands and trade unionism eventually like finds expression in the welfare state and then in the end state consumerism, right? And from and from a from the standpoint of like idealistic categories, he actually he navigates that dialectic very well. But it's also important to understand like what the like historical and like political factors were that allowed it to sort of be routed into that dead end. Sure, I think. I mean, I, I my my whole brain shutting down. I, I have the whole problem with this that I do with uh, again to a lot of communization theory that its use of Marx of Hegelian language mixed with the analytic framework is like the perfect level of both poetic and boring um, to be both super exciting and also like completely, completely shut your brain down when you go to talk about it because you're, you're grasping for specifics to prove the point and there's tons, but then there's this way in which things are generalized because they're idealized that that you also then go wait is that true and so i have that problem with this book as well but yeah i i do think the first four chapters are amazing i think frankly i think they do a lot of what what i saw in history of separation but without the political creationism that's in history of separation where you know that's not here i would also say that like I do think we're going to have to answer this question of what of what organization of the I mean, yes, I know everybody's ultimate answer from the neo count to even most left communists, um, even some councilists uh, like the ICC uh, is the party. Right. But 
most of the councilists most of the councilists uh lose faith in the party but yeah go on but, yeah, but the councilist organizations and so much that they exist today um still are, are like are like bordega um councilist hybridist um so and that's not just in communization theory that's also in like that that's in the international communist current um for sure. I mean, like, Emancipation Network has had an outbreak of pancakes themselves, so. Right. So, so like, and I say this as a person who is strongly sympathetic to the Councilist uh, organization principle, uh, but unlike most Councilists, I'm like, those don't happen until after the revolution, I'm sorry. Right? Like, they don't seem to be a viable unit as a transitionary m- measure and the only place they ever did was during capitalist total breakdown in World War One on the peripheries of capital. So we are still left with a hard, like, well, what do we do now? And, and where do we organize this? Because let's say the councilists are right, and, and maybe the party's not the mechanism, right? Um, and we're not going to take Gorse, like, let's just use the bourgeois state to, like, do this somehow. Um, um, so, so that leaves us with, well, how do we organize for either possibility of mass councils or a proletarian political party? Because the the elephant in the room in the proletarian political party is, historically speaking, even in places like Great Britain and Israel, they were the condensation of labor unions into a political movement. Um... Well, that doesn't seem like it's on the horizon anywhere. Where do you get your workers' party from? Well, I mean, I guess, I don't know. I'm a little more bullish on unionization, even if I understand, like, substitute unionization to say, like, some kind of ability for workers to collectively organize themselves into something. Like, that. that is the prerequisite for anything. Um you know, maybe obviously, maybe it doesn't take the exact form, at least in you know, a lot of industries where it wouldn't fit of like classical trade unionism. But there has, to, but there something does have to develop. There does have to be like some kind of like organic development of like working class militancy um, at the site of work, or or at least organize as proletarians in some way before you can find some kind of electoral political expression. That's of course, that's, that's also very difficult in the United States because, you know, of the nature of the two party system. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, you would have, I mean, in the United States, you know, the, the last big thing we had was where one party imploded and was supplanted by another. And then we had a civil war, you know, yeah. like that's the only kind of template we have in the United States I mean, well, <laughs> for, for class struggle. Well, and the, I guess you, I would say we're we are undercutting like the populist movement because they took the state houses by guns in the in the nineteenth century. True. Okay. And yeah. and like we um, we just feel different about the populist now. Like, yeah. Well, they're a different group of people now, um, and they were different back then too. I mean, it's uh, like they were they were turning reactionary by the beginning of the twentieth century. So. Um, but they were super effective in the 19th. And I bring that up because that, that was the last time though we've seen, we saw it in the civil war. We saw it get crushed in the counter revolution of the crushing of reconstruction. 
we saw it kind of begin in the populist and then the socialist movements in the in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century. But those are totally crushed um, by Wilson and World War One. You see it again, kind of emerge um, in the CPUSA's like her- heroic period from nineteen twenty six to nineteen thirty six, um, which is liter- I mean, literally about a decade. Um, but it's it's actually ironically crushed by the Popular Front in America, um, which liquidates the CPUSA into the Democrats for the rest of history. Um, still. <laughs> fucking still. Like, um, so, <laughs> they, ju- they just got left-wing enough for Bernie. Like, that's... You, you like, you want to see... You want to see, like, Eurocommunism out Eurocommunism, Eurocommunism. You go to the CPUSA... Where Bernie Sanders yeah, was like a fucking old, you know. Old, well, there's that great comic about Dennis Kucinich being an ultra leftist. That's from a real workers, you know, fucking world <laughs> tutorial, uh, editorial, whatever. Yeah, well, it's funny because because also right now is like the resurgence of like I don't know. It, the CPUSA has been pushing back on on people like pushing broaderism on the internet, uh, like like people like uh Peter Coffin and and yet uh yeah, that whole story is bizarre but and yet also you know and and pushing anti-imperialism again but still t- kind of maintaining their popular front so it's it's a little bit wild where we are now i mean i also can't imagine the str- like the strategy gorts is proposing actually working even in europe that state that anemic state that that is, you know, barely holding on um, to tr- trying to navigate between reactionary nationalists and maintaining the eurozone. That state is going to be a transitionary form for even UBI. Well, like the meaning of the European Union is missing from this. Like the European Union is this interesting kind of, uh, you know, kind of like. A super it's not quite a super state but economically speaking it can outflank out all of the particular national governments you know individual like fiscal desires like that just isn't a thing anymore i mean i mean kind of it, it is kind of dominated by like germany and to a certain extent france well, right I mean. any of these you know entities have a you know essentially a core and a periphery it's just uh yeah, I mean, and, and the eurozone, even without even without the UK, is still depending on the day, the second, third, or the second or third most productive economy in the world. Um, but it's been declining as both a purchasing and productive power for a hundred years, and basically Germany's export sector is basically the only thing that keeps it up. Um, and, and France's imperialism in Africa, like. If we're completely honest, and it's still hard to imagine them being able to do even the most anemic version of what Gertz wants, even though they have the productive capacity to do it. The anti kind of what he points forward specifically is the way forward. I thought I'd just point this out. Okay, so they need to basically we need to establish new types of social relations, ways of producing, associating, working, and consuming. Only the movement itself, through its practice, can create and extend the sphere of autonomy from which freedoms will be born. To do this, they have to. Uh, delimit and codify the sphere of necessity to so figure out what it is, define the attributes of the state, draw up guidelines and instruments of a central planning system, uh, and then weigh the various priorities and constraints attaching to otherwise equivalent choices. 
And he argues that, uh, you know, these tasks can't be entrusted to the state or even are taken by the movement, but it's the site of politics. And politics, he defines, as the specific site at which society becomes conscious of its own production as a complex process and seeks to master the results of that process and to bring its constraints under control. Um, which is an insanely vague answer and doesn't really seem to follow from his elaboration of like the subjectivity of like this new non-class or whatever. Um, he basically just falls back on like, you know, we just need to make like somebody needs to invent something and figure this out. Yeah. Although when, uh, when you're quoting that passage, it's not that bad because he does acknowledge it's going to be essential that just new, you have new economic like relationships to talk about. And, you know, then you could like try to plan the future. He has kind of an idealist and utopian kind of, aspect to his strategy that is honestly called for given how bad like a lot of thinking on this is you know he does think in terms of central planning and he does he even thinks that the, the central plan will be more i don't know will be more of an imposition than market-based labor but he's still for it um which is interesting um and yeah i don't know like i guess it's not that stupid I mean, I think that description makes it sound more stupid because it's just like, yeah, well, somebody needs to invent new types of social relations, new ways of producing a so. Okay, yeah. Okay, well, yeah. Well, right, right. Uh, well, no, no, you know, no, but like, yeah. Let, let, no, yeah. No, no. Like, I think he's got it causally correct, but how do you do that? How do you just right, create like, new social relations? Yeah, somebody needs to like make a box that like you push a button and it makes everything communist. <laughs> yeah, basically. Like, I mean. It does feel like, um, uh, well, but he, but he's right. Uh, like, okay. And so, yeah, the question is why he even ends up at the state at all. Right. But he is correct that if the, if this like fucking bong rip about the state is ever going to work, uh, that, that those forms are going to need to come up and be present and, you know, be able to sort of be assembled into this new thing. He has tremendous faith in this, in the autonomy in the end, you know, infinite diversity, endless combinations, um, and just isn't cynical enough about how that's going to play out um, in a way that, you know, we have a lot of, <laughs> our tank runneth very full with examples of, of where this doesn't go. And so, yeah, that's maybe, maybe it's not so much that he talks about the state at all, because he does have sensible prerequisites for, you know, what, yeah, yeah. In order for entering the state to be a good idea, you'd have to have like a lot of other shit figured out, and you should figure your shit out first, I guess. Like that—that that holds up. That if-then statement, yeah, sure. But like, that's a yeah. That's that's a big, that's a big ask. How, where's that going to come from in this society? And that's it for this time. Thanks again to C. Derek Marr for joining us on this. And uh, thank you to all you listeners for your patience. Uh, I know the pace of episode releases has slowed down over the years. Uh, at this point, we've been producing about one a month recently. But there is more coming. We have more requests to cover and some ideas for topics and books of our own initiative. Uh, that we are working on to uh, hopefully bring you in the new year. 
If you want to get a hold of us, uh, you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com. If you want to support the show, uh, hit up our Patreon. And, uh, yeah, so until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.